Well, turn with me to John chapter 7. We're going to finish the chapter. We'll be beginning in verse 37. And as we've been making our way through John 6, 7, and 8, we're looking at 12 reasons to be joyful. We've had some interruptions here and there, but we're looking at an 11th reason today. And the way we're doing this series, it's a little bit unusual. We're looking at some passages here in which Jesus is being opposed, in which his ministry is coming up against more and more walls and barriers. But what it's done is is it's shown us the, the glory and the character of Christ. We've seen his quality. We've seen his nature. And what we're saying is that the greatest pathway to Christian joy is to be exclusively focused on Christ, to see his quality, to see his nature. And so we've just been taking these qualities one at a time. And the quality we're going to see today is the longing of Christ. The longing of Christ, the fact that he longs for, not in the sense that, that he has a need, but that he longs for the repentance of sinners and to give out the free gift of salvation. There's great joy in this for us. There is joy in being the recipient of, a, of the longing of someone else. And that's what love really consists of, is that there is a person who longs to be with me. And I long to be with them. That is a big component to love. And so in the whole of John chapter 7, we found ourselves in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're just about six months before Jesus would come back to Jerusalem for the last time to be crucified. We're nearing the end of his ministry here. Now, I want to take a few minutes here to review the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. We did this a number of weeks ago, actually last year. But I want to refresh your memory because your understanding of the Feast of Tabernacles really helps set up the final sermon that Jesus is going to give here during, in this chapter. The Feast of Booths, the Hebrew word is sukkah, and that's important to note for later. It's the last in the series of festivals that's given to Israel as recorded in Leviticus 23. Now, it's very much a Thanksgiving festival, although it's much more than that. It's the third and final occasion of the year when all Jewish adult males were required to go to Jerusalem by law to appear personally before the Lord. And if you can picture this, if you were on one of the many roads that leads to Jerusalem from various directions, as you got closer, you would see more and more people coming from all directions, hundreds of thousands of people coming from Judea and from Galilee, and even Jews who had been dispersed during the exile, sometimes called the Diaspora. They would come hundreds of miles. And as you approached the city, and especially as you entered the city, it looked like a giant campout because there were these tents everywhere. The Jews would build temporary shelters. They would, some would use branches, other building materials, anything they could find, a sukkah. That's what it was called. It was, it was a booth. And so they would build these in courtyards, on rooftops, in and all around Jerusalem. I mean, they were everywhere. There was even a certain building code that had developed it had to be at least four by four feet wide and long. It had to have enough of a roof of either leaves or straw to provide shade, but with enough holes in it to see the stars at night. It was to be decorated. It was to be made attractive. And during this holiday week, you were to spend more time in the booth than you did in your own home if you were a native of Jerusalem. Most or all of your meals were to be eaten in this booth for the whole time. It was a joyful holiday. It was filled with celebration. It was also known 
as the feast of the ingathering because it was held at the end of the harvest season. Exodus 23:16 records, "You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor." But the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, we might call it the Feast of Camping Tents, it had a memorial purpose also, a memory time. It was a time to remember when Israel had lived in tents, had lived in temporary shelters when God had led them through the wilderness and provided for their every need. And even as God was was chastening Israel by having them wander through the wilderness, he was providing for them graciously and kindly. They had manna each day to eat at as God provided. Deuteronomy 29.5, Moses reminds Israel that for 40 years, quote, your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. They were wearing a pair of shoes that lasted 40 years. God was gracious to them. So it was a memorial Thanksgiving time to remember God's graciousness and his provision. The Feast of Booths was the last seven days and the eighth day ended the festival with, it was sometimes called the Great Day but it had a solemn assembly. No other labor was permitted either on the first day or the eighth day of the feast. Numbers 29, beginning in verse 12, outlines the animals that were to be offered as sacrifices. They were to offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings. Every single day, offerings were to be given in gratitude to the Lord and for the continued favor of the Lord. And interestingly, the Feast of Booths came at the cleanest time of the year spiritually for any Jew because it came just five days after the required Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It was a day of fasting and sacrifice that reminded Israel of Yahweh's holiness in comparison to their own sinfulness. And so now at the Feast of Booths, while it did include the sacrifices outlined in Numbers 29, it really was much more of a celebration, unlike the more somber and serious atmosphere of the Day of Atonement. So to the Jews, the the sukkah, the tent, the temporary shelter, it wasn't just reminiscent of their, their personal accommodations when they were in the desert. There's a bigger meaning behind it as well. It also spoke of the sukkah of God, the tent of God, as Numbers 9 records, that over the tabernacle, the holy place where God met with his people, essentially was the tent of God. The cloud and the fire, the glory of God would rest, indicating that he was present with them. This was the sukkah of God that Jewish rabbis eventually used to coin the expression, the Shekinah, or the Shekinah glory. This manifest presence of God was seen as, as both covering and as light. Psalm 105, verse 39, he spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. Second Chronicles 6, 1, it was the place God dwelt with his people. And then sadly, in Ezekiel 10 and 11, we see that the glory of God leaves the temple, leaves the tabernacle, and Israel is without the glory of God. And so the Feast of Booths, the Feast of the Sukkah, had prophetic significance for the Jews as well. It looked ahead to a messianic age when Messiah God would come and the glory of God would return once again to Israel and dwell with them. If we could put it this way, that God would dwell with them, he would tabernacle with them. He would tent with them. And of course, this is very significant in the Gospel of John because the coming of Christ in the Gospel of John is proclaimed in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled, tented 
among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when the glory of God had departed Israel in Ezekiel 10 and 11, they were waiting for Messiah to return. And when Messiah returned, the glory of God had returned. And so the Feast of Booths was a time to say, may Messiah come soon. But there's another element to the Feast of Booths, the Feast of the Sukkah, that helps us understand what Jesus is about to preach. There was a man-made tradition. There were several of them actually added during the Second Temple era, the post-exile Israel. But the most interesting one was the, the rite of the water libation. During Jesus' day, this was really the most popular part of the whole feast. Every day for seven days, a priest would walk up the ramp to the bronze altar in the temple court and he would pour a jug of water in a bowl that drained into the altar. Now, what was significant was where the water was taken from. It was taken from the spring of Gihon, the place where David's son Solomon was anointed king. 1 Kings 1.45 records this. The spring of Gihon ran right into the pool of Siloam and the pool of Siloam became known as, quote, the well of salvation. And this was based on Isaiah 12, verse 3, and it was associated with the future messianic age, with the future coming of Messiah. And listen to Isaiah 12, beginning in verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously, let this be made known in all the earth, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, here's the reason, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And so this Feast of Booths and this, this drawing of the water from the Pool of Siloam, these waters used to anoint the son of David, Solomon, and make him king, and these waters that were reminiscent of a, of a hope of a future messianic king, and the pouring of the waters on the altar, all of this brought to the first century mind the reminder of the promise pouring out of God's blessing through Messiah and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit with the coming of Messiah, the long-awaited promise of Joel 2.28, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And what was so popular about this ceremony wasn't so much the morning pouring of the water into the altar, but the night before the water would be drawn from the pool of Siloam. And this wasn't just some guy going up and getting a bucket of the water. This was a big deal. As the ceremony took place, the Levites played lyres. These are small harps, trumpets, larger harps, cymbals, other instruments. A Levite choir sang with, with songs uh, alongside the instrumentalists. In the temple area, three golden candlesticks were lit. These golden candlesticks were 75 feet high, and Jewish boys would be chosen to climb these ladders if their mothers would let them and to go light these things. And you could see this light from everywhere, both in and outside of Jerusalem. As the ceremony progressed, the priests would blow the ram's horn three times, and it was to celebrate Isaiah 12, 3, that with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In fact, the Mishnah, which is the oral, tra oral traditions of the rabbis, which was uh, eventually written down, the Mishnah says this, he that has never seen the joy of the ceremony of the water drawing has never in his life seen any joy. It was like Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's all combined with a nightly musical celebration. It was a time to look forward to the waters of salvation being brought by Messiah who would bring with him the Holy Spirit.
And now Jesus issues, in that context, one of his last chance sermons to the nation of Israel. He expresses his longing for his people to repent and to come to him. And the text we're going to look at expresses the longing of Christ. In that we're given, we might call them four road signs to point us to the Savior. Four road signs to point us to the Savior. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14 that the road to destruction is wide and the road to life is narrow. And our text gives four road signs toward the narrow road of life in the Savior. So it's in that context that we see this short sermon of Jesus Christ. The first road sign we might call spiritual diagnosis. Spiritual diagnosis. John chapter 7, look with me at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Last day of the feast, the great day. The Greek says he cried out. It means he shouted. He didn't say, excuse me, can I get your attention, please? He was shouting. I mean, this is a a festival meant to draw people's attention to the future coming, the Messiah. And he's saying, I'm here. And he's hopeful and longing for them. Now, there's a debate as to whether John here is referring to the seventh day of the feast, the official last day, or the eighth day, the day when there's a final celebration. But there's no water ceremony on the eighth day. The last one happened on the seventh day. doesn't make any difference to the meaning of the text. But I tend more toward the eighth day. Because on the eighth day, there's no more water. And that's when Jesus shouts out, I have the real water. I have the living water. Of course, Jesus has made this offer before to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. He told her that everyone who drinks of this water from the well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to what? Eternal life. And so here to his Jewish brothers and sisters, whom he's so burdened for in the very city that in six months, He'll lament over them. He'll say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Here in this city, he explains what you must have to be saved. He explains your spiritual diagnosis and very simply it is you must be thirsty. You must be thirsty a metaphor for desiring salvation, desiring righteousness. There's an implicit picture of thirst, this acknowledgement of need. These are people who have been enjoying the water ceremony day after day for a week, and yet they must acknowledge that the water ceremony will do nothing for them. They must be thirsty for living water, for the true water. This has always been the spiritual diagnosis of one who would come to true repentant saving faith, Isaiah 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. In the very same sermon in Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, He gave the qualifications of a kingdom citizen. Sometimes we call these the Beatitudes. 
And the fourth qualification is recorded in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and what? Thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Why is that important? Because God cannot and he will not forgive those who think they have no need of forgiveness. To be thirsty says, I have need of forgiveness. I have need of a savior. The first road sign our text gives is spiritual diagnosis. The second road sign our text gives, we might call it a salvation exit. A salvation exit. Just in the last couple of weeks, our family recently went on what we dubbed an old school road trip. If you don't know what an old school road trip is, let me tell you. It means eating fabulously unhealthy food, staying in horrible motels, and driving on anything we can except freeways. Just going wherever we can. It was, it was a blast. But one thing betrayed the time in which we live, and that is that I was hopelessly dependent on Google Maps on my phone to get us wherever we were going over the 2,000 miles or so that we drove. If we were truly old school, I would have been using this paper thing that some of you have never seen. It's called a map. And it would be spread out over the steering wheel, and we'd be weaving back and forth while we try and figure out where to go. Even with Google Maps, I miss crucial exits. I would miss many more with, without it. But the signs that this text is giving points to Salvation Road, and it points to the correct exit. It's almost like you see a sign, salvation from sin, five miles, salvation from sin, four miles, three miles, two miles, one mile, 500 feet. Now, exit now. The second road sign, the salvation exit sign, exit the broad road now for the narrow road of salvation. And and this is given by Christ himself. The sign says two things. It says two things. It says, come and believe. Come and believe. First, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. It's not just enough to approach Christ. It's not enough to just come near him. Many, many thousands of people had approached Christ at this point in his ministry. But you must drink. You must appropriate Christ by faith. The saved person hasn't tried to fit Christ into his life, hasn't tried to parallel Christ with his unrepentant sin, hasn't tried to mimic Christ with good behavior, hasn't tried to make deals with Christ, all sort of be a Christian. The saved person has consumed Christ, has eaten and drunk of Christ. So he must come. The second part of the sign says you must believe. He says, whoever believes in me, Verse 38, this is not just intellectual assent that Jesus is who he says he is, but belief that includes several facets. The first facet of this belief, true repentance. True repentance. Never let it be said that repentance means works-based salvation. Repentance is part of salvation, is the result of salvation. The the false disciples we saw in chapter 6, they came near Christ. They hung around with Christ. They took the food that Christ fed them. And then they left. They had an insincere and an incomplete repentance. True repentance is, according to Acts 11.18, repentance that leads to life which means there is such thing as repentance that does not lead to life. We have another word for that. That's called remorse. Listen very carefully. A lot of people are remorseful about sin because sin hurts. Sin makes your life harder. Sin makes your life more difficult. Sin has consequences. Judas had remorse 
but he did not repent. Remorse, though, why is that so wicked? It doesn't lead to salvation because remorse is still about how I feel. Repentance is about the fact that I have offended a holy God. I have trampled his law. I have messed with his purity. I have played with sin. Repentance is about him. Remorse is just all about me. We repent by understanding that there is a horror to the fact that I have offended a holy, pure, righteous God. So belief includes true repentance. There's another facet of belief, and that is acknowledgement of Savior, uh, acknowledgement of Christ as a Savior, that you must have a Savior, and He's the only one. You have one choice. Peter preached in Acts 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only the payment of Christ will pay for your sin. There is no other option. And belief has a third facet to it. Surrender to Christ as Lord. Surrender to Christ as Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says very familiarly to us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But I want to be very clear. This is not just a general acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. This is a specific surrender. This is a capitulation that Jesus is my Lord. I give up. I have no say in my life anymore. I don't get to make any rules. God makes all the rules. If I could put it this way, I no longer have a mouth. I no longer have a voice. I no longer have an opinion. Christ calls all the shots. I love the little chorus, he is Lord, he is Lord. I'd rather sing he is my Lord, he is my Lord, because that's more accurate. And the theme of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've seen in repentance, acknowledgement that Christ is Savior, surrender to Christ as Lord, the theme of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, it floods the Gospel of John 98 times. We see the theme of believing. John 1, 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Three fifteen, That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 4, verse 53, The father knew that the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. John 9, 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 93 more times in the Gospel of John. The salvation exit is to believe. Those on the broad road, which leads to destruction, must heed the road signs which show the longing of Christ for you to be his. The first road sign, spiritual diagnosis. The second road sign, salvation exit. Let me suggest a third road sign. We might call it security promise. A security promise. Now, there's a punctuation issue in this part of the text which makes it unclear as to whether or not out of his heart will flow rivers of living water is referring to out of Christ's heart or out of the believer's heart. It's not exactly clear. But we do have an inspired footnote in verse 39 that gives us detailed information, more information than we get anywhere else, on the nature of the living water. Look at verse 39. If you've ever wondered what living water is, this is it. Now this he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet 
glorified. And so we have two issues here. First, it is true that the Holy Spirit will be given, will flow out of the Lord Jesus. John 14 says that he will send the Spirit. He will be the source of the Spirit. But it's also true that the Spirit will flow from the believer. We're even commanded in Ephesians to be filled with what? The Spirit. And the problem is that the Gospel of John agrees wholeheartedly with both of those views. And so we probably would just lean a little bit more heavily toward the living waters flowing out from the believer. The believer. In John 4, 14, the living water will become in him, the true believer, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, Jesus referenced this Old Testament saying, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's not a specific quote from one book. It's, a, it's an inspired, combined commentary on several different passages. But if we look into the Old Testament, it's very hard to find passages directly referring to the Spirit flowing out of believers, but it's even harder to find passages referring to the Spirit flowing out of Christ. And so we would lean a little more heavily toward this is... This is the promise of Christ that the Spirit of God will flow out from you. In either case, the Spirit ultimately will be sent by Christ to the believer, so it really doesn't make that much difference. But the promise here is made to the Christian, and so we would, we would lean toward this being the believer. Now, we do have to comment on this. We're in a transitional time here when Jesus is preaching. The, the fullness of the Spirit of God wouldn't be given until Christ is glorified. That is, until he had died, he was raised, and he ascended into heaven. And so John gives this inspired footnote of verse 39. But don't take that to mean that the Spirit of God was somehow not present, that there was no activity of the Spirit of God at all. The Spirit was still the reason for repentance. He's still the power behind regeneration. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. It's still, he is the the illuminating Spirit who leads to salvation. And so those who would on that day respond to Jesus' offer, they are immediately given the living waters of salvation, but the fullness of the Spirit would come at Pentecost, and that now is the norm for every believer since that time. Romans 8, beginning in verse 9, all the way through verse 11, tells us time and time again, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Him. And so what is normative now is to receive the Spirit immediately upon salvation. And the fact that the Spirit of God will be flowing out from you is attested by Paul's statement that the Christian is, according to 2 Corinthians 2.15, the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. What does it mean to be the aroma of Christ? It means that you are bearing the fruit of the Spirit and people can see it. And this promise by Jesus that the living waters of the Spirit of God will flow out of the believer, this is your assurance of security. This is your ticket home by saying that the Spirit of God would be so abundant in you that he would be, as it were, flowing out, Jesus is promising that salvation in him is a one-time transaction. Let me put it the way the Apostle Paul put it in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Jesus isn't giving you a road sign that might end in a dead end. He's not going to have you take an exit that's an accident. 
It is a narrow road. It's a very narrow road. But to be sure, once you're on it, you will be led to heaven. The first road sign, the spiritual diagnosis. Second road sign, salvation exit. Third road sign, security promise. The last road sign that Jesus just waving you down, saying, take the exit, take the exit. We might call this road sign sample groups. Sample groups. The response to Jesus' sermon is going to give the reader five sample groups to compare himself to, five examples to hold up against your own heart, against your own mind, and a way to evaluate yourself to say, where do I stand? With whom do I stand? Group number one, sample group number one, we might call them the believing. The believing. Look with me at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Some believe Jesus was the prophet. This is the prophet uh, given and predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And he said, you should listen to him. They might not have a complete understanding. Some felt that the prophet would be a forerunner to the Messiah. But at least they believed that Jesus was sent by God. At least they believed that he was come from heaven. Others were even more convinced. They said, this is the Christ. Now, it's very interesting. Earlier in the chapter, just a few verses earlier, the ones who believed he was the Christ had been intimidated into silence by the Jewish leaders. John 7, verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. But now, they're starting to open their mouths. They're convinced of the identity of Jesus as Messiah and they identify with him publicly and they follow him and they believe in him. And they would become part of the remnant that is named by Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 20, says, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. This remnant is also prophesied in Isaiah but by Isaiah, rather, in 2 Kings 19, prophesied by Jeremiah, by Micah, by the Apostle Paul. These are the true believing Israel who enter through the narrow gate and find the narrow road. They are the spiritually thirsty, and Christ will satisfy their thirst. But there's another sample group. We might call them the balking. The balking. I remember playing Little League. And I always hated it when I fidgeted around on the mound because I was a pitcher and the umpire would throw his hands up and all the runners would advance because I fidgeted wrong. I, I hesitated and the umpire would call out, balk! And then my coach would glare at me and just threaten to take the ball away. What does it mean to balk? These are balking at Christ. They're hesitating. They're stopping short. They're flinching. They're freezing. Second half of verse 41 But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. They were hesitating, but they did make a right assessment about the two qualifications to be Messiah. He had to be a descendant of David. He had to be from Bethlehem. But they assumed that because Jesus was I had grown up in Nazareth in Galilee. They, they failed to give adequate examination and they balked. They hesitated. 
If they investigated just a little further, they would have found out that Jesus was in fact a descendant of David and had been born in Bethlehem nine miles away from the point they were standing. The point is, they didn't want to know if Jesus was Messiah. They hesitated, they froze. If they thought there was remotely a chance, all they had to do was ask him two questions. Where were you born and who is your mom and dad? That's all they had to ask. But their problem wasn't just a lack of information. They lacked desire. They had no spiritual thirst. So whether or not Jesus was Messiah was of little consequence to them. I don't know how many people I've given the Bible to and you hand the Bible to them and it's like giving them a fruitcake at Christmas. They're like, well, thanks, I guess. There's no hunger. There's no desire at all. And already there's a division happening. And by the way, Jesus said this would happen. Yes, he came as the Prince of Peace, but that prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9 is really more rightly applied to the Millennial Kingdom when he will make sure there's peace. What did he do the first time, though? Luke 12, beginning in verse 51, he says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? I know we sing that at Christmas. He says, No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. We put it this way, Jesus divided the believer from the unbeliever. He divided those who were in the light from those in the darkness. He divided the children of God from the children of the devil. He divided those bound for heaven from those bound from hell. He divided the worshipers of God from those who were haters of God. He divided those who were true from those who were false. He came and divided them. And now for the third time since coming to Jerusalem a few days earlier, an unsuccessful attempt to seize Jesus has been made. And in this case, those who came to arrest him just kind of bailed. They, they just didn't do what they were sent to do. And that brings us to our next sample group. We might call them the baffled the baffled, beginning in verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The Levite temple guard the, the police force for the temple grounds, they'd been dispatched by the chief priests and the, the Pharisees to arrest Jesus, but they came back without him. And what was their reason? No one ever spoke like this man. Now, they didn't accept him as Messiah necessarily, but they didn't reject him either. They were baffled. They were perplexed. They were caught on the fence. They were caught between the power and the love and the grace and the kindness of the message that Jesus gave. I mean, if, if the temple guard were being... If they were being honest, look, this guy's just preaching grace. He's preaching hope. He's preaching salvation. He's healing people. He's casting demons out. What on earth are we arresting this guy for? So they're caught between that and then their leadership who derides them and who puts them down. Have you been deceived also? In other words, not only are you unprofessional for not doing what you're told, but you, you educated Levites, you've been taken in by this fraud Jesus they were insulting the officers they were telling them that they were no better than the uneducated crowd and these leaders are so arrogant verse 48 essentially they say if Jesus was Messiah we would be the first ones to know it 
The Pharisees viewed themselves as the spiritual cream of the crop. They were infallible in their own minds as far as religious things were concerned. What a position this put the officers in. This is a pivotal moment for these baffled men. If they don't believe in Christ, they gain the respect and prestige of the Pharisees, but they will lose their souls. And if they do believe in Christ, they'll be reprimanded, rebuked, probably lose their jobs and maybe lose their lives. That is the choice. That's the choice to the baffled, to those on the fence, that to follow Christ, you must die. You must die to self. Some were coming to that conclusion, though maybe not yet to full faith, but they were seeing the writing on the wall. They were seeing the claims of Jesus as being definitely worth investigating and and the behavior and the actions of the Pharisees and the chief priests were beginning to look suspiciously wicked. And so we have a fourth group. We might call this group the brave. The brave. They're beginning to see the, the writing on the wall. And this group is represented by our old friend Nicodemus. We met Nicodemus in chapter 3. Jesus called him the teacher of Israel, perhaps the, the foremost Bible teacher and scholar in Jerusalem. He came to Jesus by night because he was having to come to grips with something. As he told to Jesus, he said, Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Nicodemus is correct. He's right. But he hadn't understood the true spiritual need he had. He probably thought that Jesus was going to put his arm around him and say, hey, this is great. You and me, Nick, we can, we can team up here. But Jesus corrected him and said, you haven't gone far enough. You must be born again. You have a spiritual need. The teacher of Israel has a spiritual need. Being born again, we saw it wasn't an action that a human performs or decides. It is the work of the Spirit of God, the act of regeneration. Jesus was teaching. He wasn't teaching that faith leads to regeneration. He was teaching that regeneration leads to faith. And he illustrated this by saying that the Spirit of God is like the wind which blows where it will and when it will. And it was to Nicodemus that Jesus explained, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That the Spirit gives regeneration to the one who's responsible to believe. The end of John 3, we're, we're just dying to hear how this ends. We're dying to see Nicodemus come to the altar and cry and receive Christ and join the church. That's kind of what we want to see. But the end of the conversation isn't recorded. It just stops. But there's something glaringly not there that we need to point out. There's no anger. There's no defensiveness. There's no any sort of rebuttal by Nicodemus at all. The implication is is that he's pondering this information still. And now we fast forward a couple of years and we see Nicodemus again. Chapter 7, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now, at this point, Nicodemus isn't openly defending Jesus, but... He alone is in the position to challenge his colleagues and he's challenging them on a point of procedure. They condemned Jesus without hearing from him. And this was a massive violation of the law. Exodus 23, 1 commands that false reports were not to be spread. You were not to be a malicious witness. What was a malicious witness? 
It was one who only believes one side without hearing all the evidence. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And Nicodemus is just saying, let's just hear what he's been doing. Deuteronomy 1.16, Moses gave the precedent that judges are to, quote, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between the man and his brother. Deuteronomy 17, verses 3 and 4 says that if a sin appears to have been committed, quote, you shall then inquire diligently. Now, here's the irony. This is the part that just kills me. In verse 49, the leaders called the crowd accursed because they didn't know the law. And here they are, the supposed experts in the law, violating it on at least four points. And Nicodemus, he's not directly defending Jesus. He is defending the judicial process and asking for the reasonable idea that why don't you listen to what he's done? Do you remember why Nicodemus came to Jesus in the first place a couple of years earlier? He said, no one can do the things you do unless he is from God. But the Pharisees and the chief priests do know the law. They've chosen to ignore it. And Nicodemus, he's not defending Jesus, but he is seeing that these men are calling for blood and they don't even know why. Nicodemus is starting to see correctly. He sees the grace and the wisdom and the power of Christ in contrast to the lack of grace, the lack of wisdom, and the abuse of power by the Pharisees and the chief priests. And of course, we see Nicodemus one more time in John's gospel after the death of Jesus in John 19. Nicodemus is seen bringing a mixture of myrrhs and aloes, spices used in the burial process to minimize the odor of decomposition. And he brings 75 pounds of these spices. Just by contrast, a middle-class Jew would be buried with five pounds of these spices. Estimates of the value of that massive quantity of burial spices, they, they vary. In today's market, the lower end of those spices would cost you about $5,000. The upper end would cost you $200,000. One way or another, Nicodemus is attending the funeral of a man he loves. A man he loves. And he shows his bravery by the way he participates in this funeral of Christ openly right in front of the men who had condemned Christ. Ultimately, Nicodemus changed groups. He went from the brave to the believing. And when Nicodemus challenged the procedure of the Pharisees and the chief priests, how did they treat the teacher of Israel? How did they treat the one who knew the law better than all of them? Verse 52, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Are you from Galilee too? Are you from that one horse town? Are you from that dump? They taunted him. They accused him of being unsophisticated. And then they try to teach him. They try to teach him. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, first of all, Isaiah chapter 9 says that the light, the sun to be born to us, will come from Galilee. But they also conveniently left out the fact that 2 Kings 14 tells us that Jonah was from Galilee, and many scholars think that Nahum and Hosea were were Galileans also. In other words, they were twisting the word to fit their own opinion. They didn't want to search the scriptures. They didn't want to interview Jesus. They didn't want to find Messiah. They wanted to retain their power. 
And they weren't just baffled. They weren't just confused about Jesus. They were belligerent. They were belligerent. That is the fifth group, belligerent. They were angry. They hated Christ. Some people would say, oh, I feel so sorry for those who are going to hell. And from a human standpoint, we do. But those who are in hell would never ask to escape because the only alternative would be to be with Christ and they don't want to be with Christ. They would rather be in hell. Never forget. This final road sign given by our text, the sample groups, after receiving a spiritual diagnosis, salvation, exit, and security promise, this final road sign, it it begs, it pleads, it entreats you to ask yourself, which group am I in? Am I part of the believing, the balking, the baffled, the brave, I'm close to faith, or the belligerent? This is an era of grace. There are multiple groups you can be in. In the future, there will only be two groups. All those who read the road signs and took the narrow road to heaven, and all those who read the road signs and took the broad road to hell anyway. Now, what does this have to do with Christian joy? Can I tell you? Can I tell you where I get joy from all of this? Our Lord went to a lot of trouble to make sure there were lots and lots of signs, to make sure there were lots and lots of road signs pointing the way to him because he longed for my salvation. He longs for your salvation. So much so that Romans 5, 8 says that while you were still in rebellion against Christ, he died for you anyway. That gives me joy. You can be joyful if you will remember Christ's longing for you. Our Father, our only response to the longing of Christ for us is to long for him in return. Having found Christ, what a shame it is to not seek him. And Lord, we would continue to express our gratitude and our thankfulness to you. Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman who may be here this morning or who may be listening to this, who is in one of those groups who is perhaps the baffled or who has balked at the gospel or perhaps is close to faith, but just fearful of, of dying to self, fearful of repenting, fearful that the cross might, be not, might not be enough for the, the number of heinous sins that they've committed. But Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit, that, that promised guarantee of our ultimate salvation, I pray that the Holy Spirit would move and that he would move in the hearts of those who do not know you to come to full and saving faith, to become those who are the believing. And Father, we would ask you for those who are the believing, those here who love Christ, I pray for their joy. I pray that the joy that they find isn't just in, in pseudo-Christian little sayings or in posters or in Christian bookstore plaques, but our joy would be founded and grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his character, in his glory, in his majesty, in his might, in his grace, in his power, in his mercy, in his kindness to us. For he has given sign after sign after sign, pointing us to himself so that we might receive him and we might see him. And there will be a day when we meet him face to face and all will be made right and we will be made like him in finality. We look forward to that day. And in the meantime, might you give us the joy of our salvation, all based in Christ. 
For it is in his name we pray. Amen.